So as I said, we are at Lamentations chapter 5, and we are learning to lament. We've been learning through this book that I hope have you noticed that God does not speak at all in. We never hear from God at all directly, but yet through the inspiration of Scripture, He has ordained it that we would hear from Him through the words of this poet, of this prophet, most likely, very much so, Jeremiah. And it was for us to be able to have, it is for us to have this book, to realize that there are times when we do not, we do not uh, feel that we hear God. And yet, this book is full of the Word of God, the voice of God everywhere, because it is based upon so many things that he has taught through the prophets. Uh, as he has taught through Moses, as he has taught through the whole Old Testament, that, uh, that who is God and who, wh- what is his character like? What, are, what is, are his attributes? How can we trust this God? Why should we? What do we know about him that is going to help us go through th- such an event like what we're hearing and reading Yet, as John mentioned in his prayer, the Bible calls it light and momentary. That's, my, my head just went, wow. How do you call the sufferings that are going on in the history of the world, that has gone on in the history of the world, that are going on now around us, that are going on in our own personal lives, those things that just don't go away, those things that are not mended or not healed, those things that just linger on for days, months, years. And then sometimes people who have passed, who have been praying, God answers afterwards. Um... This is why we need to understand who God is and we need to trust who God is. For us to, for us to understand and to, to take that, that phrase, light and momentary, is like, as we're going to look at in chapter 5 here, is that it's just, it's, it, it, takes, it takes the faith that God can give us based upon what the Bible tells us and, and uh, tells us who God is, is that it takes all of that to help us to hold on, to continue to trust in who God is. And that's what lamenting is. It is protest. It is complaining. It is bearing our emotions. What's so great about this book, as I've said, it gives us, it gives us a mechanism to take these feelings and emotions that God is not saying are bad, he is saying those are the result of, these are natural. These are the things that are going to happen to you, and now I want you to bring them to me because I have revealed myself to you as a God of the covenant, a God of steadfast love, so that you can pour that all out onto me and that you can hold on because you realize that I am holding on to you. 
that if we are truly believers in Christ, we can never lose our salvation, and God is always holding on to us. And that's something that the Old Testament saints believed in, but looked from afar. But the New Testament saints, we have something very close. And I've said this many times, they look through a telescope, we see things through a microscope. It is, we see things so much more detailed, we see things so much more clear than they did, but they were saints because they believed in the steadfast love of the Lord. They believed that even though they did not see it, they believed in the one who told them who they were and who he was. And so I think it's profound to be able to, to have this book, to be able to give us this great, great gift of faith that we don't find within ourselves until God gives it to us. And this is something he's going to talk about here in this book. This book of Lamentations is a book that is read regularly every year. Around this time, or July and August, I've got a rather thick book at home of all the holidays and festivals, Jewish holidays and Jewish festivals. And in the month of July and August, they read Lamentations every year <clears throat> to, re to remind themselves and to remember the first destruction of the temple, the second destruction of the temple, which both, we are told, historically happened in the month of July. And then through any other kind of disastrous, awful, devastating occurrence that happened in the life of the Jewish faith, they remember. <clears throat> and they continue to read this book of Lamentations. And you notice, if you've been following along with us, and I brought it up last week, you see how short the verses are. Sometimes there are only a few words in, in Hebrew, three or four or five words. As you can see, compare it to chapters 1, 2, and 3, Th those were very long, and these are very short. And one commentary says that it's like in a staccato. It's just rapid fire of these summary of, of thoughts that have happened in, and discussed and, and conveyed to us through chapters 1 through 4. And today what we're going to do is I want to read some, and I hope you follow along with me, we're going to read some pretty good chunks of passages from the Old Testament uh, that are going to help us understand what's going on because this is a this is a lament on, on the communal level it is it is one that is done corporately it is one that is given by God's people because as you see this is in the plural this is us Jeremiah the poet is bringing us to this prayer bringing us before the Lord and then there are those individual laments that we have found in Scripture. There are those laments that, as we see in the book of Lamentation, there is sin involved. They've confessed this, and we're going to see that here again today. They've admitted their failure to follow God. They've admitted their failure 
to follow the teachings of God. And they've been destroyed and been disciplined for it. So there are prayers. There are psalms. There are words that God has given to us as a church and as individuals to pray before God when we find ourselves in rebellion against God. And then there are those that we find ourselves again, as I said, as a church where we have failed God, that we have not followed the Lord, that we have gone our own way, we have done whatever it is that we have found ourselves not being the church that God wants us to be. So let me read, let me pray, then I will read. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would guide our steps this morning, even now as we open up your word, that we trust this is your word poured out, breathed out to us, that every word is calculated, every word is meaningful, there are no wasted words in this book as I remarked last week, Lord, there is, there is no time when suffering is wasted in your hands. And so, Lord, we pray that as we read, that we would again pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through them. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, we are now brought together with this poet bringing the people of God, saying, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary, weary we, give, we are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate the young men, their music. The joy of our hearts have ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore to us, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us, 
and you remain exceedingly angry with us. This book is uh, not an acrostic as the other, all the other chapters have been. There is no A, B, C, D. It's just a poem. The sentences are short. We see now at the beginning of this a cry for prayer. Most of the times they've been at the end or an appeal to pray. This is how you feel, bring it all to the Lord. Now the poet tells us, to all pray to the Lord. Remember, Lord, what he has, has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. And it isn't that God, again, does not see. Remember Exodus chapter 2, chapter 3, excuse me, where Moses encounters God in the burning bush. And what does God say to Moses there? He says to them, I have surely seen the afflictions, I have heard your cries, or the cries of my people, and I know their suffering. But yet, they continue to pray, and we pray, as I said, a little child appeals to an adult or their parents to engage in their sorrow, engage in their sadness, engage in something that's causing them fear. Because they want them to really experience it with them. So look and see. They feel distance from God. They feel that God is not watching them. Now they know in their heart of hearts that, they, that he is. And we know that too. But there is something within inside of us that does bring us down, that does bring us to a point that we wondering where, we do wonder where God is in all of this, and is he watching? Is our faith real? Is it authentic? Do, or what we believe, or what, what I'm telling you, true? Is this true? Are we just buying into something that's helping us satisfy this pain in our life? or this need for belonging, or need for love, or something bigger than ourselves, are we just buying into the story of Christianity and who Jesus is and who God is and, buy, and buying all this, this sadness and all this destruction and all this death and killing his son on the cross? Is this all true? Am I standing up here just blowing out hot air? Well, yeah, I am. But what I'm saying, is it true? And when we find ourselves at that place, in our heart of hearts, we ask ourselves, is this really the truth? Am I really in a relationship with a God? Or the God? Or the only God? Based upon what I'm seeing, and what I'm feeling, and what I'm experiencing, and how it hasn't gone away. Or how it's been so quick and so instantaneous and it's knocked the wind right out of me. Why, how can this be? And as he says here, does it have to be this intense? We, we deserve this. This is what they're saying. We deserve this. And like Job, he didn't deserve that. He wasn't innocent suffering man of God. So we have two different kinds of suffering. One that we deserve, 
one that we don't deserve, the innocent and the guilty. Here we have the guilty. And even the guilty are saying, does it have to be this intense, God? What I'm watching, did, do you really need to go this far to get the point across by watching these horrific things take place? In this place you've given to us, in this land, in the temple, in this economy of worship, of sacrifices, of our lives, of our existence, of our identity. We've lost our identity. We don't even know who we are now. And that's what God does in our life. Sometimes he takes away people. He takes away, he takes away our ability to do things. That define us as women, as men, as mothers, as fathers, as men and women who work. The Lord will pull that away from us at times. Some for a period, some for the rest of our lives. And what do we do? How do we respond? And that's what chapter 4 was about. Do we really love God enough that he is our God and we worship him, or do we have these other idols in our life that seem to be now masters of our life? And so he, he says, look and see. Notice the disgrace of suffering. And that's, that's true, is it not? That when we suffer, sometimes there is a sense of shame and, and disgrace. We lose our job. We... we lose our livelihood, we lose money, we can't take care of ourselves, we need help from other people. This is, I think, is very poignant here, is that suffering, there's great shame in suffering. And some people have a very hard time, some of us, oh, I'm not just pointing, all of us have very difficult time taking help from people. And we'll take it for a short term, but when we need to depend on somebody, day in, day out, to help us. When we got to depend upon an organization, we got to depend on the government, we got to depend on somebody else, we feel terrible about that. And I don't know if you've experienced that, but I certainly know what that feels like when you start, you know, looking at other people like they're so much better than you because they're not suffering like you are. And so what's wrong with me? And notice he's, he talks about their condition here, and he says, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes, the foreigners. We're destitute. We're like orphans and fatherless. We're like widows back then. They didn't have children. They didn't have an inheritance. They didn't have anything. They were nothing. Who was going to take care of them? That's really, remember, if you read the prophets, they were going after the, 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 the people of God. They were going after Israel because they were not taking care of orphans. And they weren't taking care of widows. And they were just buying home after home and filling it with furniture and dressing the best that they could and feeding themselves. And they were getting fat. And they didn't care about the people around them. And that's, God accused them of that over and over again. And so they're saying, now we're dependent. We've got to pay for our drinks. We've got to pay for the uh, food that we get and the, the wood that we get. And I, verse 5 is something that I hope you've heard before. 
where he says, our pursuers are at our neck, we are weary and are given no rest. That's what, she, that's what Lady Zion talked about as we, as we looked in chapter uh, 1, verse 3, where she, he says uh, to us, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She, she dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. And that's part of the curse. That's part of the curse that God speaks of in Deuteronomy 28, where he says, you're just going to be wandering, and you're never going to find any rest. You're going to be weary, constantly tired, and you're never going to find rest. And it's not only for our bodies, but it's peace of mind. It's, it's resting. And when you're suffering, you're never resting. You may be sleeping. You may be sitting idle. But the, your mind and your body is constantly churning. The energy that is expended is, is immense. And there is no rest. And this is what God promised when he gave them the Sabbath. And he gives us the Sabbath. This is a day we not only are supposed to stop doing what we normally do, but put a day aside so that we rest, realizing that God has taken care of everything for us. That the Sabbath is a day when we proclaim that God is my portion. And he doesn't pass the buck here when he says, uh, our fathers have sinned and are no more, in verse 7, and we bear their iniquities. He's not saying it's their fault. He is saying, as the sins of the third and fourth generation, it is continued on. We are all sinners. We all continue to follow that pattern of a sinful, uncircumcised heart. And this goes on to uh, verse 10. He says, our, he says uh, you know, we have, we're just, we're not even the same anymore. He goes, uh, oh yeah, in verse 6, he says, we have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria. And again, I mentioned that before. He mentions that in Jeremiah chapter 2. He talks about it in, 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 the, in uh, the Torah, you know, the, the first five books of, of, the, of the Old Testament. He talks about not going back, not laying, not, not holding your hand out. That's what this means. Don't hold your hand out, as he says here. He says, uh, we, we have given the hand to Egypt, meaning you've held your hand out to Egypt. Don't beg to Egypt. Don't make alliances with Egypt. Don't make a deal with Egypt. Don't be unequally yoked with Egypt and Assyria. Because it's not in God we trust, but it's in man that we trust. That's what, this is, what he's talking about. And this is a confession. Our, our fathers have sinned and are no more, and we bear the iniquity. We deserve it. Jesus, with the thieves hanging on a cross, he says, this man did nothing. We deserve what we get. This man did nothing. On the cross, this man showed faith in Christ, an immense faith in understanding who he was. This man did nothing. We deserve to be punished. This reminds me, now we go to chapter uh, of Psalm 51. If we look at Psalm 51, we see this prayer 
of sin, a prayer of going to the Lord because we're sinners. And notice here, and we're going to read this one, and we're going to read another one, Psalm 139, at length, because I want to understand how rehearsing who God is, how going over and over again the attributes, the character, the, our theology, our understanding of who God is makes all the difference. And when we're doing these prayers, that we need to be reminded of who we're praying to. And why we're there. Ver, v, chapter uh, 51 of the book of Psalms. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your covenant love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, my sin are ever before me, against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment." Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. The, let my, the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast not me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. For you do not delight, in verse 16, in sacrifice, or I would give it, and you will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. When we feel that anger of God, when we feel that discipline of God and we recognize it, God wants us to feel this guilt before him and bring it to him because of who he is. Because he is a God of steadfast love. He is a God abounding in mercy, abounding in love, abounding in grace, and does not hold our sins against us forever. But, Exodus tells us, he's not one that lets sin go by. Someone has to absorb that sin. And that's why we know from a microscope, not from a telescope, from a microscope, that Jesus is the one who endured that for us. And notice now we go to Psalm 139. This is how we are to understand that we want the very presence of God. We want this God who is more than we can know, more than we can understand, but we desire to wrap our arms around him as much as possible. Even if we can't connect our hands with God, we never can connect our hands. We can never hug God big enough to connect our fingers. God is that big. As he says, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. But where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I surely say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day. The darkness is as light with you, even though we are feeling in darkness, even though we find ourselves in a place where we can't see our hand in front of our face, even though we find ourselves in the fog of suffering, God is not in the same predicament we are in. He has allowed that to go on in our lives so that we don't trust in our own selves. We don't trust in anyone else. Not that those things are bad in themselves, but when we are consumed and when we live by those things and we breathe by those things and we define ourselves by those things, those things are surely going to disappoint us. But God does not. So that's why we need to rehearse the theology that God has given us in his word. Our understanding of who God is. Because when we are lamenting, these are the things we're going to have to remember. So that we can lament, and we can cry out, and we can fall on the floor, and we can be paralyzed from fear, and dread, and sadness, and mourning. For you formed my inner parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts about me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Search me, O God. Know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in a way everlasting. How does, how does God speak to us when we feel he isn't speaking to us? <laughs> By going to these passages. And this is what the rehearsing of Jeremiah was in the poetry, of reminding them of everything that he said about them. He has told them over, in the 40 years of his ministry, he has told them, the king of Babylon is going to take you away. The king of Babylon is going to abuse you, torture you. They are going to squeeze Jerusalem till there's nothing left. So why are they surprised? He has told them all these things. Notice he says, in, back to Lamentations chapter 5, the joy of verse 15, the joy of our heart has ceased, our dancing 
has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. They, they have certainly felt this privileged place in life. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Another confession. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. In Mount Zion, which lies desolate, the jackals, which is a, an animal that just scavengers and just looks for anything and anywhere in desolate places, is now running all over the place that was so prolifically, profoundly prosperous because of God's love is now gone. And now we remember the word that I talked about several times, that the word but. And here's another but. In verse 19, all of a sudden the brakes are on and you come to a screeching halt because you have to remember something or you'll just fall off the cliff. But you, O oh Lord, reign forever. How can... I put in here, it's inconceivable to have a thought to reconcile these two together. Jackals are running all over Israel, but yet God is sovereign. God's in control of everything. God is sovereign over everything. My life is falling apart. My family has deserted me. My finances are gone. My, my body is falling apart. My, I'm losing my mind. Everything that's going on, and yet God is sovereign. That's not the first place we run to. But this is what he's telling us. This is where the Bible is saying, rehearse this, Jim. Rehearse this. We keep on rehearsing this, Jim. This is going to go on in your life. You're going to sin. But people are going to sin against you. Or the, the fall of the sin, I mean, sorry, the, the, uh, the fall of humanity through sin is going to have a natural effect on life, upon the earth, upon our bodies. Things are going to grow up and die. And there's going to be that cycle. And any given moment, moment, the storm can come through and devastate everything. Any given moment, like my brother, a pain in his stomach, doesn't know what's happening to him. He can't move. He turns white. His blood pressure shoots down to the floor. He, can't, he thinks he's going to die. That quickly. My brother texts me, why is this happening now? I know. It's a very good question. Why do you forget us forever? Very honest cry. Why do you for forsake us for so many days? Now here's this prayer. Notice what he asks for. He doesn't ask for anything but one thing restore us to yourself or turn us to yourself it's like repenting repenting is turning 180 degrees and going in another direction he is saying now turn us this is a word that's used so much in in the old testament uh, and it's he says turn us not back to where we came from but turn us back to yourself and who is the only one he's saying say now think about this work really hard on it write it down 200 times on a piece of paper look in the mirror and repeat it no he is saying here return or turn yourself 
I mean, turn us back to yourself, O Lord, that we may then be turned back to you and we may be restored. If God doesn't change our hearts, we will never turn to God. If God never looked at our face first and turned his eyes upon us, if God never picked us out of eternity and plucked us out of the fire of hell, we would have never, ever turned to him. Because God has to change our will to want him, or we will never want him, because we have wants for everything else but him. And he's the only one that turns our eyes upon him. That's what their prayer is. Renew our days as of old, that we feel that you love us. That those thoughts about us are things that fall over us. And right now, Lord, we don't necessarily feel that way. And then this weird sentence at the end, which has been interpreted like four or five different ways. And boy, liberal scholars and commentators write really some really neat things about this book, but can write some really terrible things. And this is a, and, and here they just talk about the utter failure of God. Utter failure of God. God just, these people have no hope whatsoever. This is what they say. It's like, you know, why do bad things happen to good people, right? That rabbi wrote that story, that book. That God is not in control and he's just doing the best that he can. Unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remained exceedingly angry with us. Can we feel that way? Yes. Is it appropriate for this time? Yes. Is God angry for us from feeling that way? No, because that's who he knows our frame. He knows who we are. He knows we're going to feel this way. Now, there are people who have an upbeat mood, correct? I mean, they just smile all the time. And no matter what happens, they're upbeat. And they just take things in stride. And there's some of us who feel a paper cut is, leads to an amputation. And that we just are paralyzed. And so God understands our frame. God understands who we are. God knows each and every one of us and how we deal with things. So he doesn't deal with us the same. That's how come he knows every hair upon our head. He knows everything about what's going on with you. Your spouse knows you, but not really. Only God does. And I only want God to know what's going on in my head. I don't want my wife knowing everything that's going on in my heart and my head. Only God's the one that can deal with it. So what does this mean? This means that I think that he's given us the license to be able to feel that way and bring those feelings to him. Do, is, is this a possibility, Lord, that you've utterly rejected me for forever? Is this, have I done something so wrong that you don't love me anymore? Is I done, am, I, am I that much of a sinner that, that these things and these events going on in my life and I'm seeing my children's lives or whatever happens and that's causing us to think, have you not, have you just left like the Spirit of God left in Ezekiel chapter 8 through 10, that the, the, the Spirit of God just left the temple, just vacated the premises. And that you 
there's no hope for forgiveness, that you, you've, you've reached your limit and you can't stand me anymore, that I'm such a sinner that you can't keep on forgiving me, I think he gives us those, that privilege to be able to go to him this way. But the answer is, it's impossible. It's impossible for God to utterly reject us if we are his treasured possession. If he promises to love us, Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus says, I will be with you till, till, till the end of the ages. If Jesus promises us that we are his brothers and sisters, if he promises that he's prepared a place for us in the mansion, so to speak, in heaven, that he's got a room set us with a view. If he's promised all these things, if I, he says, if it was different, I'd tell you so. But this is what I'm telling you. And so it's utterly impossible for us to lose our place with God. Because you've heard this pastor say, God can't love you anymore. Then he loves you right now because of Jesus. But we can feel this way. And he can treat us and discipline us in a way that makes us feel that way. I mean, that's a writer of Hebrews tells us that. We read that passage last week or a couple weeks ago. That is why he gives it to us, so that we have something to go back to to remind ourselves, do not forsake the discipline of God. Do not become weary from the discipline of God. It is not because he hates you. It's because he loves you. So there is no way that God can utterly reject us. There is no way. Because that would say something terrible about him. Would it not? This book is full of promises, and if God rejects us, it doesn't say about us, it says about him. If he's promised in Genesis 17, as he goes through the sacrifice pieces with that that flaming pot, and he goes through and he says, I swear upon myself that if I never live up to that covenant with you, may this happen to me. Isn't his reputation at, at risk? Isn't his reputation on the line? That's why this can't happen. It's because God will never break his covenant with us. If we are his children, if we are in Christ, if we are a follower of Jesus, if our hearts have been changed, like Jeremiah 31. This is what has to happen in the life of a believer, to be a believer. This is what has to happen in your life and my life before we can ever lament this is what has to happen to Israel. Because remember in chapter 5 of the book of Isaiah, he calls them stinky fruit. He says, you're rotten fruit. You're my vineyard, but you smell awful. You've got nothing but rotten fruit hanging. Nobody wants you. I'm not even listening to you. I'm going to forsake you. I'm going to just let you take the, the results of your sin if you don't want me. But then he goes on, but I love you and I'm going to, I'm going to forgive you. But where, why does that happen? How does in chapter 66 of Isaiah, is it that the people of the nations are coming to the people of God because they want to worship God together? How do they get from rotten fruit to that in 66? And what happens is chapter 6. 
when Isaiah has this encounter with Jesus, as John read chapter 12 of, of John's gospel, right in that same chapter, it talks about, it quotes uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, and it says in there that, that it was, John says, it was Jesus that Isaiah saw. It was the glory of Jesus. So what has to happen? A circumcision of your heart. A renewing of a heart. A whole new birth. And that's what Jeremiah... See, Jeremiah can say all these things because he's preached it for 40 years. And they've not listened to him. He's preached this. Chapter 31, Isaiah... I'm sorry, chapter 31 of Jeremiah... Behold, the days are coming. You've heard this read many times. Declares the Lord, when I will make, now listen to the I wills, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Where? At the cross, with Christ. Not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, that I will put my law within them, and I will write it in their heart, on their hearts. I will be their God, they shall be my people, and no longer shall one teach another, each other, a neighbor and each other brother, uh, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's what God's got to do to the nation of Israel. And he offers that to them in Christ. And there are those who believe from a distance, from a telescope, that God was going to provide that ultimate sacrifice from him, to, for them, even though his book of writer Hebrew tells us that the sacrifices meant nothing in themselves. There was no worth in them, but they pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. That's why we turn to the book of Isaiah, and we go to chapter 53, and this is our hope. This is what the book of Lamentations is all about. He is, the book of Lamentations and the suffering of people are, is pointing to the suffering of Christ. That's where it's taking us. It's taking us to the cross. It's taking us to the week, the last week of Jesus' life, when Luke tells us that this is the hour that darkness reigns. This is where Jesus is beaten. This is where Jesus is deserted. This is where Jesus is hung on a cross. This is where Jesus is forsaken. This is where Jesus is mocked. This is where Jesus has nothing at all. He's naked, hanging on a tree. He's got nothing. This is not to take away the suffering of what's going on in Lamentations. It is not to take away that at all. But the ultimate suffering that is redemptive for us is the work of Christ on the cross. Isaiah 52. <clears throat> Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. 
As many are, were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall strut, shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they, and then the, them they see, that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like him, like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, our grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Can you hear and smell the sounds and the smells of lamentations? Surely he, was, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This is what everybody thought of the nation of Israel. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us rest and peace. He was oppressed. Oh, we are all like sheep. Who have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him all of our sins, all of our transgressions, everything. He was oppressed and afflicted, then he did not open his mouth like a lamb. He was led to slaughter. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. In verse 10, yet it was the will of God to crush him. And this is what the people in Lamentations is feeling, that are feeling is this crushing discipline, and judgment to those who do not love God. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see, what, and, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and many intercession for the uh, makes intercession for the transgressors. This is what, why we have the book of Lamentations, to ultimately point to who Jesus is and the experience and how God viewed him to be on the cross, that afflicted one. Though he did not sin, God treated him as he did. God poured all of our suffering upon him, all of our sins, everything that we do wrong, God put upon him. And the judgment that we deserve, he poured upon him which is very different than what they, are, what they are experiencing in Israel. Again, not to diminish the suffering, but this is, where, this is what the book is pointing to. It's pointing us to Christ. It's pointing us to his sorrows, the suffering servant. That's why we have this book. That's why he, he wants us to rejoice and to be able to rehearse why we should 
be satisfied with his love. But yet to tell us that he knows we're not going to be. And he understands that by not being that satisfied, what tears, what sadness, what emotions, what devastating emotions, what paralyzing emotions we can feel in life, whether we sin or it's the discipline of God, not because to whack us, as I've talked about before. It is not the discipline that he spanks us. It is the schooling of us. It is the discipline of our faith that he allows these things to come in our lives and you go, really, God, you've got to use this lesson to teach me this? You, ha you couldn't come up with something better than that? You had to go that severe with me? I've prayed that many times. So, I hope you understand the book or understand how it's made up and some pieces of it and why it's written the way it's written, but how useful it is for us as individuals, as Hope Church, how we can use it to counsel one another, how we can use it to disciple one another, how we can do it to pray for one another, how you can look in the mirror and take care of that person that you're looking at in the mirror. Or the person that you hear breathing, but you're in darkness and you don't want to move? That's how powerful this book is. That's how useful it is. And I hope, even though there are no quotes from God anywhere, that you can hear the voice of God everywhere in it. So let's pray together. We pray, Father, that you would again continue to teach us these lessons. Continue to speak to us through your word. Because there is no other way you speak to us. As your people. In a way that is clear and concise and consistent. That you will speak to Jeff, as you speak to John, as you speak to me, as you speak to anyone else here, Lord. As you speak to each and every one of us, these are your words. We can bank on it that this is you speaking to us. And so, Lord, we may use these words, these books of, these stories, these words from lament, from the book of Lamentations. That, Father, that, that Satan who had a foothold on us before, Satan who had some grips upon us, finds ourselves more equipped now to do battle with him because of this book that we've learned and we've read. And we may have read it before, but Lord, we've never discussed it before. And so, Lord, I pray that the discussion goes on and that the ministry of your word goes on and that you establish and you accomplish and you do everything that you desire to do from this book in our lives that we would love you more, that we would rejoice more, that we would be stronger. And that in our lamenting, Lord, we would not sin against you, but that we would rightly give you all of the stuff that's going in our hearts because you are the only one that needs to hear it and can do something about it because you are the one that brought it into our lives. 
So, Lord, be glorified by the teaching of this book. Be glorified by how we use it. And be glorified how we apply it to our own lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. <clears throat> so let's stand and sing in Christ alone.
the power of Christ I'll stand The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in all of God's people.